You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. You weren't with us last week. We began exploring a new extended section of this book, the book of Hebrews. We transitioned from a reflection in the early part of this book on who Jesus is into a broader consideration of not only what Jesus has done, but also what Jesus continues to do for us. We were introduced last week to this understanding of Jesus as our great high priest, as our ultimate intercessor and representative. And we just were getting started. We just scratched the surface in terms of this new direction. And all signs pointed to the writer of Hebrews gearing up for a detailed explanation of this framework for appreciating the work of Christ on our behalf. In particular, if you were with us last week, we might expect some further elaboration on a passing cryptic reference to Christ that was made in our passage last week to Jesus being a high priest, not in the line of the Levitical priesthood, but there it is, but after the order of Melchizedek. And so we would think immediately he's going to explain that. But as you're about to discover, the exploration of this intriguing idea will have to wait as our author pauses and makes a really unexpected digression. It's almost as if the writer or speaker turns suddenly to look directly into the eyes of his listeners in order to address them personally. And in fact, what results is considered by many to be the most intensely intimate it's, uh, parts of this letter. It's also, frankly, one of the more hotly debated and controversial passages in the book of Hebrews as well. So with all of that buildup, let's read a little bit more from the book of Hebrews, starting in chapter 5, verse 11. He writes, We have much to say about this, this being, again, this idea of Jesus as our great high priest. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness, But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessings of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. 
He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate through those those through whom faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when I first read this passage, I don't know about you, I immediately in my head reacted with a phrase that my grandmother used to say all the time. Well, somebody woke up on the wrong side of the bed. (laughs) I mean, if you've been tracking this letter at all, what are we to make of this sudden shift in the tone of the letter? As this speaker seemingly dumps a a shower of cold water on the heads of his listeners. I mean, where does all this frustration come from? Why the sudden, stern, and unsettling warning about falling away from the faith? How are we to understand and to receive all that's being expressed in this passage? Well, the first thing is we need to remember this address is being given to Christians who are struggling, who are learning, who have learned much already about believing in Jesus, but the thing is they're teetering on the brink of never taking their first step in actually following Christ with their lives. This letter is, in other words, not being addressed to those who are new to the faith. These are believers who've been baptized who've received the standard curriculum of instruction that actually back in the day you got before you were baptized into the faith. And as the writer lays out in verses one through three in chapter six, we we see this community has already been given the basics. They've already got the basics, the essential truths, the elementary teachings about Christ. They've learned about repentance from dead works. They've been taught that one doesn't engage in rituals to square oneself with God, that Christianity isn't about practicing a religion for God. It's about living out of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They've learned about faith in God. They've learned not to put their trust in idols, not to rely on anyone or anything before, above, or even at the same level as Christ that there is only one Savior, one Lord, who has the words of eternal life, and his name is Jesus. They've learned about the instruction about cleansing rites and laying on of hands. They've discovered that while there's one baptism in Christ, our daily lives need to be shaped by a regular practice, a regular posture of confession and repentance, of worship and service. And these purifying, cleansing, and reorienting habits cannot be shaped in isolation by ourselves on our own, but they're formed by the Holy Spirit as we come together in community, as we work together as the body of Christ. They've learned about the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. This community of believers has been coached not to live in fear of death, but to live in expectation of the life to come, the life beyond this one, the full, abundant, and eternal life that can be found only in Jesus. They've been instructed that any life lived apart from Christ is a life marked not by abiding in the grace of God, but choosing to sit under the judgment of God. So as we can see, when it comes to the stuff every Christian should know, this community has been schooled. The writer, as we heard at the start, actually has more to share with them about Jesus. Our speaker has somewhere he wants to take them in following Christ. But the trouble, the stated problem in this passage is this community of believers isn't willing to take their relationship with Jesus to the next level, to move forward to maturity in Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear this, what what the the writer of Hebrews is just calling out here sounds a lot to me like a phenomenon we refer to today as the failure to launch. 
I don't know how many of you are familiar with that phrase before, the failure to launch. It's sometimes called the Peter Pan syndrome. It's the, it describes the experience of grown-up children not making the transition into the next stage of their development, adulthood. And this is pretty much our speaker's diagnosis of his audience. Life's hardships, the difficulties they've faced, the problems they might encounter in the future have resulted in this community no longer trying to understand how to go further with Christ. Even though, as I just talked about, they have everything they require to move forward, even though they need to move forward, collectively, these believers are resisting taking the next step in following Jesus. And one of the classic evidences of life of any kind is growth. And at the end of chapter 4, our speaker, if you remember last week, appealed for this community to boldly go, to live out of the grace that we have been given in Jesus. But now we hear the writer's concern is they can't go because they aren't willing to grow. They can't go because they aren't willing to grow. And this, standing still, our speaker insists, just won't work. You heard the analogy, like a field that receives rain but only produces thorns and thistles instead of a fruitful crop. When something ceases to grow, it is a sign of death and not life. And so, in many ways, in this very shocking little turn, it starts out by the speaker basically saying to this community, you're acting like you're dead rather than alive. You're moving towards death rather than towards life in Christ. Have you ever had yourself present like this? That's kind of what's going on right now. Have you ever found yourself present when someone else was getting what I will re politely refer to as a talking to? You know what I mean? Like when someone else, have you ever been present when someone else was getting a scolding or a rebuke? Um, if any of you grew up with a sibling like me, you probably ended up in this situa situation more than once. You happened to be in the room when your mom or your dad or both were scolding or rebuking your sibling. And true confession time, if you were like me, you probably often found yourself unconsciously making sounds of affirmation or nodding your head along. <laughs> as your sister or brother was dressed down a little, uh-huh, that's right, you tell them. Yeah, that's right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And then all of a sudden, if you're like me, your mom or your dad, or both, turned around to you and said something like, well, don't think this doesn't apply to you. You'd do well to learn and listen from this too. And you're like, what, me, what? I bring this up because for me, this is one of those biblical passages that ends up being like a mirror for us to look into and reflect upon ourselves rather than to just read it, hear it, and stand apart from a distance. In reading Hebrews together as we become a part of this conversation, as this writer's words are now addressed to us, the question becomes, does this rebuke, does this caution apply to you and me, to us? Have we failed to launch as followers of Jesus? Our speaker's assessment, as you heard of this community in verses 11 through 14 in chapter 5, is that they're slow to learn. They're not keeping up. That they continue to need to be taught rather than being teachers of others. That they have the capacity to grow, but they're continuing to stunt their potential growth by wanting everything watered down. They're content to remain childish in terms of their faith, preferring to be babied, just repeatedly fed on milk, needing someone to teach them the elementary truths of God's word that they've already received all over again, rather than to attempt to chew on, to meditate, 
to grow from more solid food, a deeper understanding, a more conscious practice of their relationship with Christ. Well, as the mirror shines in our face, how about us? Are we content to remain fat and happy babies who just want to be fed, but don't necessarily want to digest more solid instruction, as we'll see on the screen, but will demand more attention? Are we content to just remain fat and happy rather than to get more solid instruction that will demand more of our attention and our time? How many of us, be honest, just want to hear the old, old story? You know, I've had some people in this community at times say to me, oh, can we just, can you just tell us the old, old story? Can you just basically preach the gospel the way we heard it years ago? Which I hear as, can you just let us hear the version of the gospel that we're comfortable with? Can you just tell us the one that fits into our lifestyle, that fits into our way of thinking? And the honest answer to that is, no, I can't. Because if that were the case, I wouldn't be doing my job. The gospel isn't necessarily, it isn't any time something that fits into our lifestyle. It isn't something that aligns with our normal way of thinking apart from God. It's often something that makes us uncomfortable because it requires us to be challenged, to be invited in the midst of that challenge, but to be challenged nonetheless to grow. Now, in saying this, I want to make something clear, and especially in light of this letter. You know, this letter sort of, in this letter, the writer rebukes this idea of having to go back to the elementary teachings, having to go back. And I want to acknowledge something. Sometimes we need to go back to the beginning. We need to go back to where we started. When we take a big hit, you know, when we experience a great trauma in our lives, when we find ourselves lost, it can be necessary. It can be helpful, healing, centering, grounding to get back to the basics, to reorient ourselves to the essentials in terms of what's real, what's true, who we are, who God is, and how God in Christ forgives and saves us from our broken selves. Sometimes we've got to go back to the basics, but that's not what's happening with this community. These aren't people who are coming back home in order to get back on their feet. These are believers who've never left the house, who keep shuffling their feet in place, retreading where they've been and what they know, rather than taking a step forward and following Jesus. How about us? I'm not, this is not about if you need to come back to basics to come back home to get back on your feet. But are you just coming home to get back on your feet? Or are you someone who's never left the house? Are you just running in circles, asking questions rather than as a way to avoid the answers that God is giving you? My friends, there's a big difference between going back to basics in order to get realigned with who we are in Christ, with how Jesus shapes and continues to shape our lives. There's a difference between that and remaining in neutral. Or worse, going in reverse as a way of refusing to move, to go beyond what we know, to go, go beyond where we're comfortable, to use that as an excuse to avoid taking off and walking by faith. And our speaker cautions us, it's probably the hardest part of this letter, that there's only two directions in the Christian life. We can't kid ourselves. There's only two directions in the Christian life. We're either following Jesus, moving forward, going deeper, or we're coming adrift and falling away. We are either growing in our faith, striving against the currents of life that would cause us to give up or give in, or we are content 
to float on the surface, ignorant of those currents that can so easily, so slightly, so gradually pull us off course until we find ourselves utterly lost. This is pretty intense. It is impossible for those who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance? What exactly is being said here? Is this saying, as many often struggle with, that it's possible to become a Christian and then to fall away completely, to lose Jesus, to forsake one's life and salvation? And the answer that's based not just on this passage, but based on looking at the whole of Scripture, which, which complements what we see here, as I'll show you in a second, consistently the witness of Scripture and the answer to this question is an emphatic no. God's grace is always greater than anything we do or don't do. This is not about worrying about losing our salvation or somehow Christ letting go of us. Remember the title of this letter. This is a letter to the Hebrews. And as we've already experienced in this letter, the biblical story of God's liberation of the Hebrews, his chosen people from captivity, has been brought up time and time again. And if we think about that story, on the one hand, their deliverance from suffering testifies to God's faithfulness to the promises he made. He never, despite their grumbling, despite their rebellion, undoes his election of Israel. The church doesn't replace Israel as if God had negated Israel's chosenness because of Christ. Rather, Christ's followers are grafted into Israel. But at the same time, while this is true, on the other hand, we've seen, it's been brought up already in this letter, the unfaithfulness of the Exodus generation in the wilderness lost them entrance into their promised future. Yes, God initiates salvation by acts of unconditional and unmerited love with the promise to maintain Israel's salvation from beginning to end. Salvation is God's gift alone to offer and to secure but what we see, nonetheless, is God doesn't force salvation down our throats. It is a gift freely given that transforms our lives only when we freely receive it. We need to listen very carefully to that passage that kind of ruffles our feathers, very carefully to what our speaker describes here. Look at it. For those who have received truth and insight from the Holy Spirit, for those who have tasted divine love and grace in their lives, those who have heard the Lord speaking through his word into their hearts, those who have encountered God's peace in their being that the world cannot provide, for those who have experienced, who have encountered, who have received all of this grace, to turn their back, to walk away, is to crucify again the Son of God. Why? Because one is not walking away from what they don't understand or from what they have not experienced. It's quite the opposite. One is turning his or her back on what one does understand from what one has experienced. To appreciate this distinction, I, I, it called to mind to me um, a remembrance of someone, a, a, one, a, a fellow Christian who I have tremendous respect for, who impacted my life learning about him, William Wilberforce. I don't know how many of you have heard of William Wilberforce before, but he was a very influential figure in the abolition of slavery in England. Um, he, out of his faith in Christ, was actually committed to several uh, societal changes, but the abolition of slavery was perhaps his biggest cause. And if, if you know anything about William Wilberforce's life, he was relentless in pursuing every single member of parliament to get their vote to abolish slavery in England. And when he was presenting his abolitionist bill for the first time in England, he gave this moving speech where he recited 
the horrific facts of slavery for three hours and then ended with these words. And this is the point I want to bring up to you. He ended after all that with these words. He said, having heard all of this, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say that you did not know. That is what the author of this letter is talking about here. There is a difference between the child who does not know how to read, to write, to speak intelligently, and the child who refuses to do so. A good teacher never gives up on a student. A good teacher never gives up on a student. If a student fails to learn from a good teacher, it is because the student has given up on him or her self. My friends, God doesn't ever give up on us. This warning is not a warning about a God who is unwilling to forgive, to restore someone who is repentant, someone who admits what he or she doesn't know. But God can't. God won't force us to learn the lessons he's trying to teach us. This warning is about forsaking or ignoring what we already know, what we've already been given. Let me make it clear again, our forgiveness, our salvation, our life is not about what we do. All of these things, all of these are about what Jesus has done, what Christ is doing for us. Everything, all that we have, all that we are is thanks to the grace of God. No questions, no exceptions. That being said, Jesus clearly teaches us in the Gospels and the writers of the New Testament, from Paul to Peter to John to the writer of Hebrews and so forth, all insist what we do with the grace we've been given, looking for and relying upon the continuance of God's grace in our lives matters. When we forsake the grace we know, when we forsake the grace we have been given, we stop learning. We stop growing. And once we stop growing, we die. In fact, without the grace of God, we are dead even now, dead in our sins. Jesus meets us where we are. Jesus meets us as we are. Jesus takes us by the hand and leads us where we need to go, where we truly want to be. But we have to move our feet and follow him. The Christian life isn't about letting God do it all. If it was, if that's what the Christian life was about, just God does it all and we just sit back fat happy, then why would Jesus call us to follow him? Why would Jesus call us to follow him? The maturity the writer urges his listeners to embrace is to follow Christ. And it's so much more than an appeal to grow up. It is, again, a specific call to follow Christ. And this call to follow Jesus is not some mechanical imitation of Christ. Asking ourselves with a wristband, what would Jesus do? And then going and doing likewise. That has emerged within the Christian community over the years, and it sounds great, and it seems really helpful, but it's kind of off base. Following Jesus is not about asking yourself, what would Jesus do, and then go and doing likewise. The appeal to maturity in Christ, in other words, is not just an appeal to be like Jesus, as if all that Jesus offers us is an example of a moral life that we can somehow copy on our own. No, as we've already heard in this letter, Jesus is the pioneer of our faith. And as the pioneer of our faith, we have to follow him, not merely imitate his example. 
In other words, we can't follow Christ without Jesus leading and guiding us every step of the way. Maturity in Christ is increasing and deepening our reliance upon the grace of God in how we live our lives. Maturing in Christ is increasing and deepening our reliance upon the grace of God in terms of how we follow Jesus. Make no mistake, don't let anybody tell you different. Following Jesus requires energy, focus, effort, hard work. If it didn't, why would Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, tell us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? But the good news, mirroring what we're hearing here in Hebrews, is Paul, in that same sentence, doesn't just say to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He adds, because God is at work in you. That's the gospel. That's grace. Guys, too many of us in this room, in this community, in this world, too many of us bear a false humility, you know? We tell ourselves, we tell others, we just can't, we just can't go deeper and wider in our knowledge and understanding of God's word. We just can't go deeper and wider in our understanding of Jesus. We're just not good at prayer. We're just not good at prayer. We're not good at Bible study. We're just not. We're just not really good at it. We're not good at evangelism. We're not good at mentoring. We're not good at serving others. And so we just beat ourselves up and with this false video, just we're not very good. We're just gonna have to ask God to forgive us because we're just not very good. And the problem with that statement, there's so many problems with that that I wanna break down for you. But the first is we say that we're just not good and anything to do with following Jesus. We're not good, we can't pray, we can't study, we can't evangelize, we can't mentor, we can't, serve, we can't do any of it. We're just helpless babes, right? And the thing is, I look around this room, including myself, and each one of us have dedicated our time and our energy and have mastered others, other areas of study. I look around this room and you guys, some of you in this room, have demanding professions that I wouldn't even know where to begin to do what you do. I look around this room and many of you have navigated, are navigating challenging relationships, relationships that have pushed you to the brink, that have pushed you beyond yourself. And I also look around this room, and I can say this in general, from the, and I, I say this with love, this community. I look around this room, and I look around at a group of people that I, don't, I think I can say without any question, make an effort to remain informed, and not just informed, opinionated about what's going on in the world. Get you guys together over some coffee and donuts, and you are not going to shy away from letting each other know what you think and why you think it. What's right? Who's right? Who's wrong? I say all of this, but then I look at us, and when it comes to Jesus, we throw up our hands and claim it's too hard to figure Jesus out. It's too hard to follow him. And my friends, if we can do all of the above that I just mentioned, and yet at the same time deny we can't when it comes to our relationship with Christ and his call upon our lives, and then add on top of it that when Jesus calls us to follow him, to know him and his call upon our lives, unlike everything else I just mentioned, it's not something we have to do by our own effort. We don't have to do it on our own, but we simply have to rely upon the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit in order to move forward and gain traction. If we continue to sit here and deny, we can't follow Jesus. Then the truth is, we really just can't be bothered to try. We can't be bothered to exercise the grace we've been given in order to grow. 
If you look on the back of your bulletin, this is actually reminding us, me, us, of one of our values. It's not one of our more popular ones when it came out. But there it is. Being stretched is how we grow. If we are in a relationship with this God, we will be stretched because this God is about growing us into who we were meant to become. And I don't, there's a variety of ages in this room, but it seems to be that there's some age, I don't know exactly where it is, I'd like to know so I can look forward to it, where we reach a point where we go, that's it, I'm done, can't grow anymore, can't change, and in fact, if you poke me about it, I'm gonna push back on you and go, I've grown enough. I'm set in my ways. And I wanna know when that age is because it just sounds great. And I'm kidding. Because biblically, there's no basis for it. We're not done growing, changing, being stretched until Jesus brings us home or returns in glory. And even then, if that's your posture, if you reach whatever that magic age for you is where you're like, that's it, I can't change, I'm done, I am what I am, stop asking me, I can't be stretched, I can't grow. What are you going to say on the other side of eternity when you have an eternity to continue to grow and change? Uh, uh, sorry, I don't know if you understood this, but I finished way back there. Our God is about growing us and changing us, and that means we're going to be stretched. Being stretched is how we grow. I know this is harsh. I'm trying to mirror the tone of this letter, but beloved, if you don't want to be challenged, if you don't want to have to think harder, if you don't want to have your heart opened wider, if you don't want to learn new habits and practices, then be honest. You really aren't all that interested in following Jesus. Because following Jesus is more than just believing in Jesus. Many, we all believe in Jesus. That's why we're here. But believing in Jesus is not the same thing as following Jesus. Following Jesus is more than just trying to milk forgiveness and salvation from Christ when we get in a jam or when we die. That's exactly what the writer says. Is your babies. All you want to do is you just want your milk. You want to know you're forgiven when something goes wrong, and you want to know you're going to be okay when you die. But following Jesus is more than milking Jesus for forgiveness and salvation. Following Jesus means living our life for Christ. It means being regularly stretched by the word and the spirit beyond our perceptions, beyond our complacencies, beyond our comfort zones, so that we would reach out and serve others, so that we would teach and make disciples. That's the other thing. I don't know if you caught in this passage that the writer underscores for us is the necessity of our growth in Christ isn't just about us. Our growth in Christ is for the sake of all creation so that the world would know and believe and embrace the hope, the love, and the salvation we have in Christ. Another way of saying this is, my brothers and sisters, we are not called to be Christians. We are not called to be Christians. We came up with that term. Jesus never did. We're not called to be Christians. In following Jesus, we are called to be disciples disciples of Christ. And here's the thing, disciples of Jesus make disciples of Jesus. Grace is given so that grace can be shared. To grow in Christ is to get, to reach others for Christ. It is to teach, to mentor, to invest in the life of another person. And so I'm asking you, if you're growing in Christ, if you're following Jesus, who are you teaching? Who are you mentoring? Who are you discipling? Or are you sitting here saying, feed me, feed me, feed me. I just want to be taught. I want to be taught. I want to be taught. You're fed. 
We're fed, we're taught so that we can get to feed and to teach others. If you're not investing in someone else, if you're not mentoring another person, if you're not discipling, then you're not growing. You're not growing and you're not following Jesus. And being a teacher, if that intimidates you, discipling someone else doesn't mean you have to stand in front of a classroom. Some of us are like, I can't do that. Being a teacher, being a mentor, discipling someone doesn't mean you have to stand in front of a classroom. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9, what is called the Shema, reminds us where, when, and how the Lord told his people to be sure they were teaching others, especially their children. Do you remember? When you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, tying them as symbols, the word of God, this grace of God on the door frames of your home so people can see it in your life, in how you live. Peter, in his first recorded letter in chapter 3, expresses a similar idea when he puts it to us this way. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Becoming teachers, becoming disciple makers means we get to be able to share the gospel with others. We get to tell the story of what God in Christ has done for us, what God in Christ is doing for us. Can you tell that story? Are you telling that story? Because even more than this, being teachers, becoming teachers, becoming disciple makers, following Jesus means we get to generously and compassionately share what God has given us in Christ, what God is giving us by speaking up and reaching out. We get to speak up. We're empowered to speak up and reach out. We get to lend a hand and have the backs of those who are victims of abuse and injustice. If you're following Jesus, you can't remain sitting in the pew. Because if you're following Jesus, you get to go out there. You get to be in the world. You get to see the world change. You get to see the world grow because you are growing in Christ. Our speaker clearly indicates, again, echoing similar sentiments throughout the Bible, we show our love for God. We show, we reflect that we're following Jesus when our vision is bigger than Jesus and me. When we aren't just asking, am I flourishing? But we're committed to ensuring our neighbor is flourishing. Some of you are still struggling with the question of if you're flourishing. But when's the last time, have you ever even asked, is my neighbor flourishing? Do you see these things as divorced from each other? Because in God's economy, they're not. When we're following Jesus, when we're growing wider and deeper in Christ, we get to go beyond our backyards. We get to go on the other side of the street. We get to go across the aisle. We get to break down the walls between us. We get to bridge the divides that separate us, that separate any human being from experiencing the love of Christ. Is that where you're growing? Is that where you're going? Because that's where Jesus is. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And if all of this still sounds too much, too hard, too impossible for us, despite what he has said, what I've tried to reflect back, notice how this passage ends, okay? Because what's interesting is what started with a frustrated rebuke and then continued into a stern warning all of a sudden concludes with a strong vote of confidence. Did you see that? The preacher who began by telling us, this is too hard for you to handle. This is just too much for you. Ends by assuring us, you've got this. You've got this. 
And so it turns out, when you read it as a whole, this whole passage wasn't about tearing us down as much as it was building us back up to a community that's being tempted to fall into spiritual slumber. This is a rally cry. This is a wake-up call to press deeper into a life of spiritual renewal. And in the same way, this message this morning, we should hear these words not as a list of uncompromising threats or impossible demands, but as an appeal intended to capture our full attention and focus, to shake us out of our complacency within Christianity in order to catapult us further ahead in our relationship with Christ. Be encouraged. All the strength, all the wisdom, all the discernment, all the patience we need to walk by faith, to follow Jesus, come from the same grace of God that set us on this journey. It's grace upon grace upon grace, grace upon grace upon grace. If you're struggling to find the energy to stay focused, if you're right now tempted to give up and to do something else, if, you're stu- if you've stumbled and falled and fell, if you've hit the grind, you know, and it's just becoming too hard, if you're sitting here and you know deep in your bones that you cannot, you must not give up, but you don't know how to keep putting one foot in front of the other, beloved, instead of worrying about Jesus letting go of you, rather than stress about the Holy Spirit taking himself away from us, We need to prayerfully focus and discern where we are beginning to let go of Jesus. How and why we are starting to distance ourselves or become deaf to the leading and influence of the Holy Spirit. And in that space of vulnerability, that space of authenticity, that space of just absolute honesty, without hesitation, without excuse, without fear, we have to run into the arms of Jesus as fast as we can. We need to turn down. We need to turn off all the other voices and noise in our lives and abide in the grace of God. We get to abide in the grace of God through the word and by the spirit. My friends, allow yourself to be stretched by this grace. Allow yourself to be stretched by this grace. And if you're sitting here today and you haven't been stretched in a while, spoiler alert, it's gonna hurt. It's going to hurt. But there's good hurt and there's bad hurt. If you've ever had physical therapy, you know what I'm talking about. Right? Allow yourself to be stretched by this grace, even though it hurts. Grow and be changed in that stretch. Recognize how the Lord is shaping you through whatever it is you're going through, even if it hurts. And you will find in this simple but crucial in this repeated daily act of submission, of relying upon the grace of God, you will learn. You will grow. You will grow in the faith you have been given. Is your faith shallow? Is it stagnant? And you just keep trying to up it a notch? Press into the grace you have been given. Because again, in this simple but crucial repeated daily act of submission, relying upon the grace of God, you will learn, you will grow in this faith you have been given. You will grow in this hope that does not disappoint. Are you losing hope? Then let this grace grow you. And you will grow in this love from which you cannot be separated. It's this, comes down to this, our professions of faith in Christ Our professions of faith in Christ become our perseverance of faith in Christ as we follow Jesus one step at a time.
Grace is what sets us on the path. Relying on that grace is what keeps us going all along the way. And abiding in this grace of God is what ensures that we do not fail to launch, but rather that we go forward to wherever, to whomever Jesus leads us, and that we will eventually, eternally make it home.